You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Dr. Mary Aiken, Adjunct Associate Professor at UCD Geary Institute for Public Policy. The lecture, The Cyber Effect, Children and Young People in an Age of Artificial Intelligence, Robotics and the Internet, was given as part of the Plotting the Future series. Led by the UCD Humanities Institute, the UCD Institute for Discovery, and the UCD Geary Institute for Public Policy, Plotting the Future is a public lecture series and forum for debate that explores the urgent question of what it means to be human in an age of artificial intelligence and robotics. The lecture was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Dr. Aiken was introduced by Professor Philip O'Connell, Director of the Geary Institute. So, good evening everybody, and uh, I'd like to welcome you to the Geary Institute for Public Policy. I'm Philip O'Connell, I'm the uh, Director of the Geary Institute, and I want to welcome you to uh, this public lecture on plotting the future. And what we're concerned about with plotting the future is the, the question of what it means to be human in the, the, the 21st century. And this is a lecture series that has uh, been sponsored by the Humanities Institute, the UCD Institute for Discovery, and the, here at the Geary Institute. I think most of us would probably agree, and that's perhaps why we're here, digital technologies are um, revolutionising society. and They're raising serious questions about what it means to be human. Um, some people think about this as something to celebrate in terms of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Other people are quite concerned about uh, what it means in terms of human behaviour and in terms of uh, unprecedented transformation of the human and the social world. Now, I can think of few better people to talk about the relationship between technology and human behaviour than Dr. Mary Aiken here. Uh, Mary has written extensively on issues relating to the intersection between humankind and technology, or as she describes herself, where human beings and technology intersect or collide. Mary is, among other things, uh, an adjunct associate professor at the UCD Geary Institute uh, for Public Policy here, I'm very glad to say. She's also an academic advisor to the European Cyber Crime Centre at Europol. She's a lecturer in criminology and research fellow at the School of Law in Middle- Middlesex University. Uh, she's director of the Cyber Psychology Research Network, and that's just to mention a few of her many entanglements. She's the author of The Cyber Effect, which is a best-selling book which explores how human behaviour changes online, published by Random House in 2016. Uh, it, it's been getting rave reviews. Uh, just to cite a few, Stephen Levitt, the author of Freakonomics, said it was a, a great, important book, a must-read. And Bob Woodward said, Mary Aiken delivers a deeply disturbing, utterly penetrating and urgently timely investigation into the perils of the largest unregulated social experiment of our time, which I think is a, is a good way to introduce Mary's work. So without further ado, um, Mary's going to talk about the cyber effect of children and young people in an age of artificial intelligence, robotics and the internet. Mary, yes. over to you. Good afternoon, everybody. Yes, so I'm going to talk about what in the future in a developmental context. So I'm a cyber psychologist, so just briefly, what is cyber psychology? It's the study of the impact of emerging technology on human behavior. The discipline is due to draw, enjoy exponential growth due to, as Jan describes, 
the pervasive and profound impact of uh, technology on human beings and the internet per se. So when we're talking about plotting the future, one of the things we have to think about is all things cyber in terms of how we interact with technology and also conceptualize cyberspace as a place. So when NATO designates cyberspace as a domain of war, a domain of operations in 2016, we need to pay attention to this. So my specialist area is forensic cyberpsychology. So I specialize in criminal, deviant, and abnormal aspects of human behavior in a cyber context. Everything from cyber babies through to cyberchondria. So this was the hierarchy of needs, updated to include need for Wi-Fi. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that a need for virtual reality <laughs> and robotics will fall under that pyramid. Uh, in, in years to come. So my job as a cyber psychologist is actually to deliver insight at that intersection between humans and technology. And I've been involved in lots of different research areas, and these are some research public, recent publications. This one, Cyber Babies. This was Technology Solutions to Technology Facilitated Human Trafficking, the Royal Society. I participated in a report that actually informed cybersecurity protocol in the UK for the next uh, five years. This paper was um, impact of our possibilities for olfaction as a variable in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. This one is youth pathways into cybercrime. And this was an online child grooming and safety project. So the reason I'm flagging up the different research areas is to show that in my approach to the problem space, I've taken effectively a transdisciplinary approach. So I have a fellowship in cyberpsychology from the Royal College of Surgeons, and then I went on to complete a fellowship in network science on the, this uh, IBM MIT project, and then I followed that up with a fellowship in criminology, and I've just been awarded a fellowship in information communication technology. So four fellowships in four disciplines. Not easy, but necessary in terms of not having a myopic view of the problem and actually looking at the problem across multiple disciplines in order to illuminate. So there's lots of interest in the psychology of cyberspace, cognitive, social, educational, organizational psychologists. But one of the main empirical and academic questions that we have to ask is, are theories and constructs that have been conceptualized tested and validated in the real world still applicable online. So are we measuring what we are purporting to measure? And I think that's a fundamental uh, challenge to, to academia to actually rethink the behavior that's manifested in a cyber context and more importantly, how we measure that. So basically, yes, we know all the good things about technology and the internet. We know about the connectedness. We know about the dissemination, democratization of knowledge, we know about the opportunities to learn, but there are many challenges. So when I wrote my book, The Cyber Effect, I wrote an entire book about everything that was wrong. And I did so because there are an army of academics out there, or sorry, not an army of academics, an army of marketeers out there telling us it's all good. And I wanted to say, hang on a sec, here are the problems. And the reason I wrote about problem aspects of technology and the internet was that I wanted actually to introduce 
balance into the debate by saying, here are the problems, we know all the good things, now can we meet somewhere in the middle? I think what's fundamentally important is that instead of taking a, a, a HCI approach and considering the user, you know, the size of our thumbs and how quickly the screen scrolls and sort of the ergonomics of the design, we have to start thinking about humans as opposed to users. So I'm interested in cognitive, behavioral, physiological, social, developmental, affective, and motivational capabilities of humans and how they are changed, improved, or compromised by technology. I think the second challenge in an academic context is that is really how timely research is in this area. So we're all familiar with the standard protocol for actually getting funding. So you have, you look at a research area and then you apply for a grant and, and our funding. And that could take six months to a year to actually write your proposal. And then your chances of being granted funding or, or the odds are getting well worse and worse in that area for many. And effectively, then you get awarded the grant and then you have to start a process of recruiting by university protocols, how you recruit, who's going to actually participate and work on the on the research packages. Then you start the research, then you gather, gather your data, then you do your analytics and you write up your report and then you move towards publishing. You're really talking about probably a five-year cycle. And the big question is, is that cycle fit for purpose in an age of technology? I would argue that the very phenomenon that we are studying actually may be <laughs> you know, the, the research may be redundant by the time the research is published. And in fact, I'm having, I'm attending, I'm speaking at a breakfast in Strasbourg for MEPs in, in two weeks' time, and I will be making that point directly to them in terms of Horizon 2020 funding is how do we get rapid research in this area? And, and in doing so, then, how do we enable academic first responders, first responders at the scene of the impact of technology on humankind, and specifically my area of concern, which is the developing child. So Philip kindly spoke about my book, The Cyber Effect. When I was asked to write the book, actually by Random House, and it was shortly after the television series CSI had been commissioned, and I don't claim credit for either because I'm an academic, I'm not in the entertainment business, and when I got a call from Hollywood asking me um, if they could meet me, it was on the, further to the uh, White House uh, project that we did that had some publicity. And they said they wanted to meet me. They were interested in making a television series. I said nobody would be interested in cyber psychology. This was about five years ago. But as it turned out, we did make a TV series that aired in 170 countries and it was called CSI Cyber. And it actually gave me a chance to, to both entertain and to educate simultaneously regarding this impact of technology on humankind. When the TV series, or just before it aired, I got a call from uh, Willie Morris, who, who represent uh, publishers in New York, and they said, could you write a popular book? So I said, well, I've written many book, you know, papers and reports and uh, academic uh, book chapters, but I've never written a popular book. So I asked them, well, what exactly is involved? And they said, shorter sentences and less references. <laughs> so I thought, I could do that. And it was funny because when I wrote the first you know, piece and I sent it to the publishers, they, they edited it and it came back. 
And they said to me, Mary, this particular thing, what was that? And I said, that was a sentence. They said, no, that was a paragraph. <laughs> and when I came back, I remember one particular sentence was edited down to five words. Technology is not always good, full stop. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Anyway, that's a popular book. In fact, when I was write, asked to write to the book, an academic said to me, they said, oh, don't do it. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, many a fine academic career has been ruined by a popular book. So here's to ruining a fine academic career. This book is on sale now in 100 countries. And, you know, it's, it's been, you know, the, the, the thing I suppose that I was nervous about in terms of writing a popular book, and, and, and the definition of popular is that effectively you may not have all the studies to support your opinion. So there's a wonderful uh, freedom in that you can actually write things like, I think, I believe, maybe. I remember writing, I believe, in an academic paper years ago, and uh, my professor put a red ring around it, and he said, belief is a Christian sentiment and has no place in an academic paper. So I had the freedom with this book to write down everything that I was worried about, things that I thought was going to happen. And unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because there was a lot of negative content, some of those things now are being supported by studies, which, which is gratifying in one sense in that my instincts or informed intuitive assumptions were good or predictions even if you will but but we're not going anywhere good with the impact of technology on children in terms of the negative effects so i actually go to china later this year china has bought the rights to my book and will be publishing it in two languages and i think that's the single thing that i'm most proud of in terms of the book because china doesn't buy technology books so my book will go past the Great Firewall of China, and I will get a chance to talk to, the, to anybody there who's interested about what's good about technology, but also the problems in terms of actually coming up with solutions. You know, I'm absolutely pro-technology. I firmly believe that there are technology solutions to technology-facilitated problem behaviors. We just have to be looking at and investing in the right areas. So here's some sort of a list of state and trait manifested in a cyber context. So as a cyber psychologist, I would argue that human behavior fundamentally mutates online. So it changes. You know, there's a time distortion effect. We've all sat down to do a couple of emails before we rush out to dinner and an hour has gone by. Also, you know, effects like uh, Solar's work, 2004, the online disinhibition effect dictates that people will do things in a cyber context that they will not do in the real world. Of course, there are positive entities in terms of online behavior, like altruism. But, you know, again, of all the different research silos I've been involved in, the one thing that, I say, that I've observed, and I say observed because I don't have scientific studies to, to, to support the assertion as yet, is that whenever technology interfaces with the base human behavior, the result is amplified and accelerated. Now, the important context to create here is at the moment... We're at the very beginning of human interaction with technology. So we've got our devices, which are really transactional. They're in our hands or they're on our desks. They're not, they're not on our bodies yet or, or embedded or incorporated into our bodies, and that's coming. So effectively, we can, we can talk about, and also we're, not, we're, we're dealing with basic AI. So we're dealing with basic algorithms. So for example, search is a basic algorithm. You go onto Google and, and, and the associative indices that are made are, base, are basic in terms of two plus two equals four. They're structured and they're basic. 
But as search move toward move is moving towards deep learning, which is a learning AI, even the engineers who work at companies like Google and others admit that they will lose control of the process. So now we're talking about humans interacting with artificial intelligence through something like search, where there are very few boundaries or controls, and we don't know what's going to happen in that regard. And also, and I'll talk about it a little later, in terms of the ethical considerations of the impact of artificial intelligence engaging directly with children and effectively bypassing parents and that is or teachers, and that's concerning. I don't have time to go through all the specific constructs, but basically... If you look at my website online, there are lots of resources and papers that will cover the ones I've flagged up. So today, because I'm focusing on developmental aspects in terms of attempting to plot the future, I'm going to talk about three areas. I'm going to talk about cyber babies, cyber kids, and cyber teens into young adults. If we're going to talk about the impact of technology, we've got to go back to, to birth. And this is a really neglected area, the impact of technology on the developing child. So this is before we get anywhere near talking about how you might navigate or how you might use search or how you might interact with artificial intelligence. This is the point at which infants familiarize themselves with technology through, um, through engaging with screens, screens of any sort. And parents often ask me, well, what is the best age for me to introduce my child to technology? And I really flip the question around and say, well, the more important question is, what age do you introduce your child to your use of technology? The average adult touches their phone 200 or checks their phone 200 times a day and touches it 3,000 times a day. And in my book, I make the argument that if you are a caregiver to a young infant, then that's an awful lot of time that is being monopolized by technology. 3,000 touches to a device. How much touching is the infant get, getting in that, in that case? And in fact, I spoke at the Hay Festival three weeks ago when I was selected by BBC Radio 4, just one of four authors selected from all the authors who presented there, to read an extract from my book live, which was then broadcast on BBC Radio 4, and, and I chose an extract which actually dealt with this subject because I'm so concerned about it. I mean, my argument effectively is that the face of the human infant is designed to be the most engaging thing on the planet. So we're sort of hardwired to find infant faces uh, very attractive. That's why the Internet is full of pictures of babies and kittens and puppies until the advent of the smartphone. Now something is competing with the face of an infant. And... And I describe it almost as an evolutionary blip. If a baby gets less face time, then you're going to have problems with um, psychological issues such as bonding, then you're going to have problems with attachment, and then that's going to manifest over, over the lifetime of the child into, into adulthood. So the American, it's not the APA, it's the AAP, the American Association of Pediatrics, actually recommends that Children under the age of 18 months should have no screen time, none at all. And between 18 months and 24 months, they should only have limited exposure, uh, FaceTime for catching up or Skype for catching up with parents or grandparents who are overseas. 
So in France, they've just recently banned all television that targets children under the age of three. So this is an area of growing concern. Again, about, I write about in the book, we are getting frontline reports of from schools of children who are turning up at age four or five in, in primary schools with significant developmental delays. Experts swiping, but they can't pick up a pencil or work with building blocks. They're also um, exhibiting signs of very poor uh, self-control, um, antisocial behavior and aggression, and very, very limited attention spans. So we don't have the scientific, peer-reviewed, published papers to demonstrate that behavior yet. We will have it in five years' time. We'll have the longitudinal study that says if you give an infant a, a device at this age, here's what the consequence um, or the result is. But in the meantime, my argument is, well, can common sense not prevail? And the guidelines that we do have, can we not pay attention to these guidelines? So post-publishing the cyber effect where I, I debated this issue and I argued strongly that there would be a negative impact, a study has just come out reporting the linking the use of touchscreens devices with sleep problems in infants and toddlers. And that will impact in terms of the development of those, those young children. So in a real world context in psychology, we have stages of development. Everybody's familiar with Piaget. You know, at this age, your baby should you know, push themselves up. And at this age, they should be sitting upright and then they should pull themselves up, upright to actually uh, take their first step. And they should say their first word at a certain age. Where are our stages of cyber cognitive development? At this point in time, we could put an academic expert panel together and based on the information that we have, we could plot out for parents. Look, here's the best advice in terms of, it's not that we want to deprive your child of interacting with technology, but age-appropriate interaction. And starting with infants, it's important in a developmental context. It gets very important as kids get older. So this was a product that was designed and launched by a, a baby goods manufacturing company. And it was called the activity seat. But before the child has, and, and it's labeled as suitable from birth, based on what science? So before the infant has the strength to hurt, turn their head to look away, you've got something delivering some CGI movie directly into their visual field. And if an infant's only awake for five hours a day and they're watching an hour of this, you really want to do this when you've got 700 neurons firing a second, creating visual pathways? There's a great paper, again, called The Good, the Bad, and the Unknown. You know, as scientists, we should be concerned about the unknown. So as we move into the older age group, yes, again, we know there are positive uses of technology. There are studies that demonstrate that using um, good applications, children can increase their word power or their ability in mathematics with, with specific time-limited exposure at specifically at at a specific ages, appropriate age. But the a study came out recently, a consumer study, that showed that the average age that a, an American child gets her first mobile phone is six. That's far too young. Bill Gates actually just stated a couple of weeks ago that he would not give a smartphone to a child under the age of 14. 
So again, when we come back to these cyber, the stages of cyber cognitive development, this is important. I sat on this group, the Internet Content Governance Advisory Group, and effectively we looked at legal but age-inappropriate content online. So that would be everything from adult pornography uh, through to self-harm sites, so the pro-ANA and the bulimia sites that we see online, through to suicide sites, which are available online. And effectively, if we're talking about the interaction between artificial intelligence and, and, and children or minors, the point at which a 13-year-old girl who has some form of body dysmorphic issues the point at which she sits down and types thin into search and presses return and is led to these horrendous sites, who is ethically, legally, or even morally responsible for that transaction? Not the algorithm. The algorithm doesn't know it's talking to a child. But these issues will become more and more um, critical as we see an increasing wave of children who are negatively affected by content they access online. We're seeing increases in eating disorders in young children. We're seeing increases in eating disorders in young males in particular, increases in body dysmorphia. A study came out recently that said Instagram, of all the social media platforms, actually was worst in class in terms of negative impact on mental health of young people. So I spoke about search moving to learning AI. So what's going to happen when a learning algorithm interfaces with a child? In terms of accountability, if a child said to a teacher in a class, um, what is an apple? And the teacher said, oh, it's apple-shaped bottom. There would be an outcry. How could a teacher make such a terrible association for a child? But what about when search does it? So whatever problems we have at the moment, as the technology becomes increasingly sophisticated and immersive, for example, as we move to virtual reality and then on to robotics, the problems we are experiencing now will only, in my prediction, be exacerbated because as, these, as the environment becomes more psychologically immersive, it becomes more powerful. So to give you a basic analogy, if you think about being cyber bullied now and you're a, 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 an eight or a nine-year-old and you're being bullied on these sorts of lean mediums, now go to virtual reality, and when you see Facebook buying Oculus Rift, you know that's where Facebook is heading. Sorry, Oculus Rift is a um, uh, HMDU company, so head-mounted display unit um, manufacturer and developer. So can you imagine a child experiencing cyberbullying in full virtual reality? 300 people turning at them and screaming at them? There is no adult there is no psychologist who would be robust enough to withstand that sort of pressure, yet that's what children are going to experience, unless we tackle the problems now. So if we look at the UN Convention on the Rights of a the Child, there is no mention in that document of digital or internet because it actually predates our use of the internet. So I have campaigned the uh, UN Commissioner to actually to amend the UN Convention to incorporate the rights of a child in a cyber context. If we had some level of protection there, then we could uh, lobby the various entities involved to say, well, do you really want to expose children to this? You know, particularly hardcore pornography, and I'll come on to talk about that in a few minutes, because that area is, is it's going from bad to worse. And I know it sounds like bad news, but 
I work with Europol. I'm an academic advisor to the EC3. I work frontline. So I see what's coming and ultimately what will affect Irish children, your children. So in terms of, yes, the incorporation of the cyber rights of a child. So if you look at, say, pornography and everybody says, well, parental controls. Well, if you have children, I would like you to do one thing this evening. Please go home and search bypassing parental controls. You'll get a million results and you will see what your kids know. And the point is that parents should not be left to paddle their own canoe in cyberspace. As a society, we have a collective responsibility to protect those who are vulnerable. So children, people with learning difficulties, people with, with, with any other form of disability. We have a, a duty to protect them. Great societies are not judged by shelling, selling the greatest number of shiny goods to the greatest number of people. They're judged by how you protect the vulnerable. And if we think about next generation and artificial intelligence and children, again, what are the legal and ethical parameters? We need to be talking about that now. So the Kent Police in 2016 um, pointed out that in their uh, case reports, children as young as nine are exchanging explicit sex. So here's an interesting development, and this shows you the sort of the pendulum-type approach. So sexting is a huge problem um, from a policing point of view, because if you are a minor, and if the image is explicit, you are de facto generating and distributing child pornography, albeit of yourself. So the 13-year-old descends it to her 14-year-old boyfriend, she is generating and distributing child pornography. The problem with sexting is it's viewed by policing almost exclusively through the lens of the legislation on child pornography. But if you think of sexting as a spectrum, it's a social problem predominantly as opposed to a criminal problem. So back in the day, we went behind the cow shed and played spin the bottle or strip poker. What we didn't do was take digital evidence and widely disseminate it. So the US, in almost a typical radical response to a problem, have now decided to, to pass a bill through the U.S. House of Representatives that will impose a 15-year prison sentence on children who sexed. And, and remember, in some states, you can prosecute children in the U.S. from the age of eight and up. The horror of this scenario is that some poor 14- and 15-year-old kids, the first ones to be caught, will be prosecuted once, if this legislation goes all the way through and get a 15-year jail sentence. So I'll be in Washington in, in a couple of months' time speaking at um, a policy event. So what I want to know is what, what prison sentence does the app developer get? <laughs> the one who facilitated the distribution of the indecent image. So we can't prosecute our way out of these problems. Sexting in teenagers runs at anywhere between 25 and 40% of teen population. That's an awful lot of kids being sent to prison hypothetically. But this is probably trying to scare the kids out of the behaviour rather than fundamentally tackling, well, how does this behaviour take place? So if you use an application, for example, uh, Snapchat, you could actually, if you knew the age of the child, put a filter on both ends to stop the image being uh, distributed. And that comes back then to age verification. 
So age verification requires that you know that it's a child using the device for this purpose. So this is a fundamental problem with technology. If we are going to allow kids to use the internet, then we are going to have to have age verification protocols in place. And it is eminently possible to find a solution. You just need a collective will to address it. There is no shallow end of the pool online for children. So the U.S. military have an entity called Nippernet. You know what Nippernet is? It's an intranet within the internet. And it's a safe place where the military can go and exchange their you know, operations and their secrets. Why can't we have a Nippernet for kids and protect them? Children have a right to a childhood. They have a right to innocence. And I would argue... And, and, and we get into this argument of, well, I'm not a publisher. Well, I'm only the pipeline. Well, I only generated the content. Well, I only hosted it. But if we could have a UN convention that enshrined the right of a child to healthy mental development in a cyber context, then whether you are the device manufacturer or the search engine or the Internet service provider or the entity that hosts the content or the entity that generates the content. If a child is exposed to this content, then I would argue you are collectively involved in the abuse of a child. Now, that might make them pay attention and think, well, how are we going to find a solution to actually protect children? Same with cyberbullying. Cyberbullying is maths. It's content, bitch, hate, die, but by direction, by interval and frequency. We could sit an AI, there's a constructive use of artificial intelligence, on a telecommunication server. And at the point at which a, 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 a series of events triggered the algorithm, then you would send a digital outreach to the child, go talk to your parents. You would send a digital outreach to the parent, you need to talk to your child. No breach of parental trust, no reading of emails or no looking at text messages. A smart use of artificial intelligence. And this can be opt-in. Parents who've got a child you know, under the age of whatever they decide, 16, they can opt-in or could opt-in for this service. Parents should not be the last person to know that their child is being bullied. This is where we could use artificial intelligence in a constructive way. And we're so hung up on the idea of surveillance, which is another American construct in terms of this freedom of the internet, um, that we forget, actually, that this is parenting. This is not surveillance. We're talking about minors. So in terms of teenagers, uh, another issue is, is actually tech talented youth getting involved in hacking. We've just published a report. I won't talk too long about this report, but it was here at uh, the Geary Institute. It was one of our, um, we had researchers here working on this report along with Middlesex, along with Interpol and with Europol. And we published this um, report, which actually looked again at the societal responsibility if we have no metric to actually detect technology ability in a young child, we have IQ, we have EQ, we have CQ, we have no TQ, we have no technology quotient. So we can't identify that latent ability. If we can't identify it, we can't nurture it, we can't mentor them. If we have, don't have educational programs at an early stage in school, and I'm talking between 6 and 12, then we can't engage with these kids and actually allow them to be successful and build their self-esteem within the educational system rather than doing it in hacker groups online. And if we have no appropriate educational messaging that teaches parents, well, here's the difference between your kid um, 
feeling around the perimeters of a network in terms of exploring their tech skills, and this is the point where they're penetrating or taking data, and that's illegal. If parents don't know and teachers don't know and we don't have public education programs, how can we possibly prosecute these kids for hacking? Again, it comes back to a policy issue. What is the responsibility of the society in terms of policy in these areas? We have uh, in this report here, this Europol, we're talking about um, the moral compass issue of we, we have a generation of virtual shoplifters that are growing up. They've been stealing music since they were eight and videos since they were 12 and movies since they were 14 and using crack software when they're in college. It's online, it's therefore it's available, it's free. So again, that's a whole generation influenced in a psychological context by the environment of cyberspace. And we know from environmental psychology that you're influenced by the environment that you grow up in. We have the digital age of consent, which is the EU says we can, that that can be anywhere between 13 and 16. And this could be pivotal in terms of enabling parents to actually be aware of what their children are doing. So for your child to use any form of social media, and potentially it may also extend into search, this is about data, this is about permission for advertisers to target children, that arguably, if the age of consent in Ireland was 16, then arguably children could not access any of these forms without explicit or some form of parental consent. Again, the parental consent issue has yet to be tested, but there certainly would be a requirement for parental consent. So that would be very empowering for parents, except it's likely that the default position will be 13. And even then, we have to question, will it be enforced? Because COPA regulations at the moment state that 13 is the age that you can't sign up to any uh, social media without being the age of 13. But we all know the studies again show that anywhere up to 40% of 8 to 12-year-olds say have Facebook accounts. And yet Facebook claim we don't know their kids. Well, that's not credible. So it'll be interesting when GDPR comes in, and it'll be interesting in an Irish context because our age of sexual consent is pretty high, it's 17. And also our age of um, medical consent, which was a very well-tested and tried um, uh, premise, it was deemed that a child was not capable of giving informed consent for medical procedures under the age of 16. So I think in Ireland, if we go for 13, that is eminently challengeable, where we could argue in an Irish context that children are not able to give informed consent to participate in social media uh, platforms like Instagram, where there's proven studies to say there's a negative mental health consequence. How could they give permission for something that had a negative impact on their mental health if they can't give them permission for something that may have a negative impact on their physical health? So I think interesting times ahead in terms of, and I have debated this area. I have been invited in by uh, the minister in question to discuss it. I've also made a submission to to the various bodies who who have asked for submissions. So we'll see what happens in that space. Moving a little older, um, the NCA report came out recently that there's been a six-fold increase in online dating initiated sexual offences. And this is in online dating for adults, but we're also seeing the emergence of these sites such as Yellow, which is described as Tinder for teens. What could go wrong? 
So we've also seen reports that there's been a surge in sex attacks on children by children. This is frontline policing. What did we think would happen when we introduced a whole generation to hardcore child pornography online? And I believe these are the sort of UK reports that are actually are informing um, the UK government's move in this area in terms of actually age verification to access hardcore pornography online. The Europol report, and I sit on the advisory group at Europol, and we've had a busy day today because the report just came out yesterday. And what we found in is a surge in coercion, extortion, and sextortion attacks on children by organized cyber criminals. So sextortion is where a young child, uh, say, for example, a 13-year-old boy believes he's talking to a 14-year-old girl online, and then they engage in some sort of explicit exchange online, and, and the boy... It, it, the, his activity is, is captured and then is used to blackmail and sextort that child for their pocket money. And that goes on after week after week and week. This is not like $10,000 ransomware. This is you know, 20 euros a week forever. Or the threat is we will show this to your class. Are you humiliated yourself or, or a, a, some sort of explicit image that the child has um, undertaken? So again, technology opens up the world to your children, but it also opens, you know, your child to the world. And and there are some very, very bad actors out there in the world. Some networking actors, not, not uh, other types of actors. So the UK Justice Minister, Philip Lee, says we're seeing an internet age driving greater access to more worrying imagery online. In the extreme, the sexualization of youth is manifesting itself in younger conviction ages for rape. In terms of robots and humans, I'm just, uh, just watching the time here, another five minutes. What we're seeing is that 40% of Japanese men and women in their 20s and 30s are single. And this is linked to the increasing amount of AI and uh, both robotic and AI simulators, dating simulators. So these avatars, um, you know, it's sort of Stepford Wives. They, they won't dump you or ditch you. It's not in their code. So they are, they are designed to please. And in the, in the studies, the Japanese men reported, well, you know, they, had, um, they have gaming online, they have pornography online, they have sport online, and they have these love bots, these avatars, you know, what more could they need? They certainly don't need the pressure of real-world relationships. But if this trend continues, you know, one in four unmarried Japanese men in their 30s are virgins, according to a 2010 study, so I can't imagine what the update on that is. If the current trend continues, Japan's population will have sunk by more than 30% by 2060. So how do we academically get on top of the process? You know, um, Mori, the robotics professor, he observed an eerie sensation. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the uh, Uncanny Valley, but Mori, it was intuitive. He said, pay attention to the small things. And when he had this sensation, he then set about investigating it. And I think in an age of technology, as scientists, we have to be not afraid to listen to the little things, intuitively, common sense. You know, what do we think this means? And then jump into the study. So this is just an extract from my book where I argue that, that um, 
some of the robotics and CGI industries view the Uncanny Valley as a design challenge and are determined to solve it. So Uncanny Valley is CGI getting closer and closer to human representation or robots getting closer and closer to human representation. What happens when they do? Imagine what the future could hold when humans are emotionally targeted by the manufacturers of artificial intelligence machines. Imagine when children are targeted by the same entities. Like the games and dating apps we've grown to use and love and depend on for entertainment, pleasure and intimacy, the robots will likely be seductive and irresistible. It could start almost benignly with an adorable robot or avatar that you can't help but love. Artificial intelligence, whether it is embedded in a robot or in a Tinder algorithm, can impact human life on the most profound levels, from finding a mate to intimacy. We are moving from natural selection to cyber selection. So on some positive uses of technology, uh, the paper that I mentioned is virtual reality treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, can you imagine developing an app whereby, say, young children with difficulties could actually engage in a virtual swimming with dolphins? You know, uh, that could be very empowering. The Law Reform Commission, I sat on this commission as well, and I talked to you about the cyberbullying app where I said, look, this is not only should we be looking at creating policy in this area, we should be looking at creating active machine intelligence solutions when we're talking about minors that would help police this area. And once... Children became aware, say in cyberbullying, that there was accountability in terms of and consequences for their actions. We could very quickly get to the root of these problems. Real world bullying is a problem. Why? Because there's no evidence. Cyberbullying is nothing but evidence. You cannot cyberbully without leaving a digital trail. Had it ever become a bigger problem than real world bullying? So I spoke about this, the research approach, um, interdisciplinary. Cyber psychology is an exemplification how this could happen and illuminate the problem space. And our research vision needs to actually factor in cyber developmental factors. We are not standing still in time. Children are being born. Infants are growing up. Toddlers are engaging with technology. We need to act and we need to act now. Uh, we need to conceptualize pro-techno-social solutions. We need to consider the role of ethics a transdisciplinary approach, and it's time critical. We need academic first responders. Thank you for your time.